The Beauty We Love podcast is inspired by the Rumi poem. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Listen as I interview people from all different walks of life as they share their stories of the conventional and unconventional ways they have created success. These are the stories of people who have linked their passions with their purpose and have infused what they love into what they do. I'm your host, Ellen Browning Lafferty, aka L. Browning, and in this episode of the Beauty We Love podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Roxana Badrudoja, an inherited family trauma liberation scholar, therapist, professor, and an Akashic and shamanic practitioner of over 22 years. Dr. B shares her story of starting out in a career in finance before answering the call of her ancestors and moving into her work as an inherited family trauma liberation scholar and therapist. Dr. B talks about her three miscarriages, her experience of profound grief, and the lineage of that grief within her own family and beyond that into the grief and trauma of living within a masculinist and patriarchal culture. For any of our listeners currently experiencing grief, Dr. B shares a process that can support you. Dr. B shares her love of vulnerability and how it is both a form and function of love. Here talks about living an erotic life, one that we meet by experiencing the fullness and depths of our emotions, experiences, and vulnerabilities. Dr. B's work clarifies the power of speaking truth as BIPOC folks from an embodied position of vulnerability and how the embrace of this vulnerability can be transgressive, radical, and healing as a mode of being to stake a claim, sit with, and affirm. Dr. Roxana Badrudoja is a tenured full professor of sociology, women, and gender studies, and critical race and ethnicity studies, and the chair of the Department of Sociology at Manhattan College. A queer mother to force fear energy beings. Dr. Badrudoja focuses on inherited family trauma as a platform to explore how people interact in their relationships. Here, Dr. Badrudoja thinks deeply every day about how vulnerability and woundedness are imagined and how trauma impacts the ways in which we show up in the world. Dr. Badrudoja is the author of National Unbelonging, Bengali American Women on Imagining and Contesting Culture and Identity, the editor of New Maternalisms, Tales of Mother Work, and a contributor of Good Girls Marry Doctors, South Asian Daughters in Obedience and Rebellion. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Badrudoja. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Al. I'm like so freaking excited. I'm so excited to have <laughs> yeah. you here too. Let's get into it. So the yeah. first three questions. One, what are your pronouns? So my pronoun is H-I-R. Some people pronounce it as her and some people pronounce it as here. I don't use it in the standardized way that this particular pronoun is used. Oftentimes this pronoun is used to imbue a gender neutrality. However, for me, it has a very different meaning, particularly because I'm not freaking neutral about anything. I have something to say about everything. So my prone is not about neutrality. It's about tapping into our divine masculine and our divine feminine and looking at gender from a deeply divine and holistic space. Thank you so much for sharing that because until meeting you, I had was not familiar with that pronoun. So thank you so much for sharing. What decade of life are you in? 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I'm almost 50. 
I am almost 50 and I'm like freaking, I'm just freaking excited about it. I don't, I love aging. For me, it's not about deterioration. It's about developing this deep-seated sense of maturity each day goes by and showing up in the world in more meaningful ways. Like each day becomes more meaningful for me. So aging for me is a goddess experience, if that makes sense. Totally. And if what part of the world do your ancestors come from? Yeah, I do know what part of the world my ancestors come from. Some of my ancestors come from the Middle East, and some of my ancestors come from the Global South, particularly the Indian subcontinent. Those are the two primary areas that I trace my ancestral lineage back to. And it's probably important to note that my ancestral lineage has experienced forced migration and ethnic genocide. So I think that's a really critical point to put on the table when we talk about where do we trace our lineage to. Thank you for sharing. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a bit about, can you share what do you do for a living and what would you say is your expertise? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an inherited family trauma liberation scholar, and I'm a professor of women and gender studies and critical race and ethnicity studies. And I'm the chair of the sociology department at Manhattan College. I'm also, I consider this to be a part of my career. I'm also a queer mama to four fierce energy beings. And what this all means, you can have that in your CV and your resume, and it's all well and fine. But for me, I always ask the question, what does this mean? How does that I just ran off all these titles and have these identity markers? What does this mean in terms of how I show up in the world? And so for me, what this all means is that I think and study and write and teach about and identify and resolve generational woundedness and vulnerabilities that impact how people show up in the world, how they show up in their relationships. Particularly, I pay attention to romantic relationships and parental relationships. And ultimately, the research that I do, the work that I do, focuses on how do people operate in the world? How do they operate with one another? And I use a particular therapeutic method that I know you're very familiar with because you're a practitioner. I use family constellation as the primary mode of the therapy that I engage in with my patients and clients. And I've been doing this work for well over 15 years. My primary focus within all of this is I focus on grief. I focus on grief. I focus on woundedness. I focus on what I would call vulnerabilities, that I'm a vulnerability scholar. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Can you share, how did you become inspired to get into this line of work? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if inspiration is the right word. I know you know this as a family constellation facilitator is there's all there are these unknown right that are a part of us that we are not that we're not aware of, right? 
And so I don't want to romanticize this. And I also don't want to sound like lame by saying this, but it's almost as the choices that I've made in terms of my career and how I want to show up in the world in my career and how I want to be of service to others and to myself. I'm not so sure that they were choices, even though I say that they were choices. I'd like to argue I didn't have a choice and my ancestors led me to this work. I had no choice, right? I had to do this work to bring to light the state-sanctioned violence that my ancestors have experienced and to bring to light the experiences of domestic violence that the women in my family have experienced. And I believe that my ancestors chose me to bring these forces out in front to the center and look at what is versus saying it happened in the past and it doesn't matter. Perhaps maybe I'll add this. My first graduate degree is in finance and I worked for a software firm. This was in the 90s. And one day I woke up and said, I'm not going to go into work. I called in, quit my job. And I started volunteering at a domestic violence shelter. Really no rhyme or reason. I came from finance. Why the fuck would I do that? It's because my ancestors were guiding me. I needed to uncover the violence that was sitting in my family line and bring it to the forefront. Because if we don't see it, then I will pass it down to my children. That's how I'd like to talk about it, that it wasn't a choice. Thank you for sharing that perspective. And also about that experience of having, of just one day knowing that you were being called to do something different. And I think that's something that some of our listeners might be able to relate to. I think some of them are also at a, perhaps a transitional point where what at one time served a purpose is feeling some sort of call for change. And I'm wondering if you can walk us through a little bit of like your life history of how did you get to where you are now? And that's a very broad question, but it sounds like you have really interesting story of having different skills and interests and passions and then ultimately being called or being led to the way you're showing up and serving today. Yeah. Would you mind if I asked you to tailor that question a little bit more so I have a starting point? Sure. I'm wondering, what was your first job? (laughs) Okay, you are going to laugh. So my first job was in finance, and I started off as an intern at Merrill Lynch. And I love numbers, don't get me wrong. But I knew something, how about this? I'll share this. So most of, you know, the first half of my life in terms of my undergraduate education and my first master's degree was deeply rooted in the financial world. And my first job was in finances. And then I moved into a software company 
but all my life, even as a child, all my life, I felt a huge gap in my heart. I felt a huge gap in my body and I couldn't figure out what was missing. On the surface, it looked like everything was intact, right? I had a two parent, I lived in a two parent household, nuclear family, standard Americana, white picket fence kind of thing in the Midwest. Looked perfect. But I couldn't figure out these bouts of depression that I would have starting as a child, right? Bouts of depression would come on. And there were moments throughout my life where I'm like, someone's missing, something's missing. I can't figure it out. And then almost 10 years ago, when I turned 40 and I lost my first child in utero, my mother told me that I never told you this, but you were a twin and she didn't make it. Yeah, that was when everything fell apart, but also put back together again, if that makes sense. So there was someone missing, right? Like literally there was someone missing. My sister was missing. And so here in, again, from, from family constellation perspective, I'm not the first child. And so there are children missing in my family line, right? That I didn't know about because on the surface, it looked like it was, I was the first child and then I have a younger sister. But in fact, my twin is older than me. And then my mom later shared with me that she had a miscarriage between my sister and I. So there's actually four siblings in the line. And then there's another sibling that we maybe I'll talk about later. But see, all of these children are missing. And the body knows. The body knows. And so my body also picked up what was missing in my mother. And then my mother was carrying what was missing in my grandmother because my grandmother, I later found out, also lost twins. So my mom was not the first child. So she thought she was the first child. I thought I was the first child. So all of this un- unfolded. Multi-generational. Yes. Loss. We were all following in each other's footsteps. Because and my as my mother lost children, as my grandmother lost children, I also lost children. So we're following in these footsteps. And of course, that day that I woke up and said, I'm not going back, we're not going back to work. And I'm going to, I just started volunteering at a domestic violence shelter. I had no idea why, but I later found out that my paternal grandmother was a victim of marital violence. And globally, including the US, back in the day, there were no, there was no such thing as marital rape right? The United States is only recently a couple of decades where he, where we have a law that speaks to marital rape. But up until then, women were considered property. 
right? So I'm carrying all of this. So I've made all these choices. I have no idea why at the time. I wasn't slated to get a PhD in, in, in the work that I do now. I was a finance person. But my ancestors, they were guiding me in what I needed to do. It was a course correction. My ancestors were correcting my course. And that's how I end up becoming a scholar in race and gender trauma. And currently I explore reproductive trauma and how this shows up in our bodies and how we can use our traumas to create life-affirming epistemology. So trauma, so in my orientation, let me explain that a little bit. My orientation is not that trauma is the end of us, but I'm also not saying, I'm also not romanticizing trauma. I don't subscribe to the survivor model. What I'm trying to argue is that we can use our traumas to think about intentionally and deliberately to think about how we want to show up in the world. And it's all choices. We can orient ourselves to move forward. We can orient ourselves to remain stuck. We can orient ourselves to, to look into the past. And what I'm arguing is we can use our traumas to create life of affirming epistemology, meaning life-affirming knowledge, right? How do we use embodied trauma to move forward? And uh, part of my response is to, to develop a connection with our ancestors. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I want to dig in more because after viewing your website, there were so many things that you had written that I just can't wait to ask you about. And I wanted to start with this. You write embodying grief as a pathway to clarity and living your life fully. So you talk about that embodying grief. Can you speak more about what in your experience has led you to write about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's actually a quote from one of my recent publications. So my most recent publication is entitled Bones of the Womb. And Bones of the Womb is about reproductive trauma. And I write particularly, I look at it at two different levels. I think about my personal reproductive trauma and the children that I've lost in utero. And I nestle that, my personal experiences, right? I nestle that into the context of state-sanctioned violence in the United States towards BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. So while I'm writing about my personal experiences of reproductive trauma are tethered to, are tethered to my experiences of being a woman of color in the United States. It's tethered to the experience of being queer. It's tethered to the experiences of what it means to be a Muslim right, in the United States, right? So I use 
the backdrop of state-sanctioned violence in the United States towards Black, Indigenous, and people of color to talk about what it has meant for me to lose children in the American nation state as a person of color, right? The story is individual, but the theme of it paints with all of us as BIPOC folk who have lost children, whether it's in utero or whether it's law enforcement murdering our children in the park for playing with the toy gun, right? So the loss of my children, I'm able to talk about it now, but at the time, and they, and I lost children over a period of three years. I was pregnant for three years and back to back, I, I lost children. And there was a time where I didn't want to live anymore. I just couldn't move forward. And I remember with the deep anger, I was like, God, put my children back in my womb. I demand it. Give my children back to me. And I was oriented towards death. And there in the other room was my adolescent daughter all alone because her mom couldn't show up for her. The grief just, I couldn't get out of bed. But one day I did get out of bed. And I walked into my daughter's room. She was sleeping. And I looked at her. And I'm like, I'm going to need to figure out a way of how to honor the child who is here while also honoring the children who are no longer here. And in Bones of the Womb, what I talk about is how do we create life-affirming epistemology when we're grieving, right? How do, from the space of grief, how do we produce life-affirming knowledge? And I respond to that by showing people how to engage in rituals, ceremonies, prayers, spells. I cast spells with the ancestors and ancestral work. Through these conduits, I demonstrate to people how to piece back together wanderings of our soul from heart-shattering grief. And while my experience is about reproductive trauma, th this particular chapter, Bones of the Womb, it can be loss of anything. It can be loss of your favorite teddy bear when you're five years old, all the way to the loss of your consent, where someone takes the ability, your ability to say no away from you. So I'm speaking about sexual violence, right? So it runs the gamut. And so my work is about conceptualizing irreparable grief. And then I provide 
a pathway and a practice to engage with the grief and move forward in life. That's what I mean by life-affirming epistemology. Does that answer your question? Oh, it absolutely does. And I want to hear, if you're okay sharing, a bit more about these practices. Grief is something I feel like is so universal and so deeply felt. And I know for myself, like I, I lost my dad when I was 16 and my younger brother a few years ago. And so I've, and I still feel like I'm grieving. I feel like, and that there's a universality in that. And can you share more about I don't want to say the antidotes to grief because that seems a little too cut and dry, but you talked about yeah. some of these practices in your book. And I'm wondering for people who are listening that might be currently grieving all different manners of losses, are there any recommendations or practices that you think might be a resource for them? Yeah, absolutely. I, I will, when we're done conversing for today, I will share a link with you so that your readers could have access to this one particular chapter that I'm speaking from. Thank you and so I'm, much. Yeah, I'll include it in yeah. the show notes. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm happy to I'm happy to share that. And I want to make very clear I am not romanticizing grief. Grief fucking sucks. But I also, maybe it's not a but, and I also believe that there's no way around it. Like I've tried not to be embodied, right? I was leaving my body all the time out of grief because I didn't want to be in my body, right? So I've tried that, but that didn't work either. So I think it behooves us, dare I say, I think it behooves us to dance with our grief. I think our grief demands it. And I'm actually being reminded of this poem. It's by a, by a samurai, Sahide. He wrote it in the 1600s. And he writes, barns, it's a translation, barns burnt down, barns burnt down. Now I can see the moon. Barns burnt down, now I can see the moon. And so I'm sharing this poem because I'm using it as a preface to point to uh, a folktale. Because I think ancestral lore and folktale can give us some comfort. And I know it did for me. And my third child who transitioned in utero, I named her... Nictia, which is the namesake of an owl. And there's a folklore about Nictia, the owl woman. And so Nictia's job is to protect that which is in danger of being lost in this world, right? So her cave is filled with bones. And the most bones are those of her namesake, the owl. And in her cave, Nictia patiently reconstructs the owl skeleton. So in many ways, she's reconstructing herself. And when the skeleton is complete, she sits by her fire and she thinks about what song she'll sing. And in this quiet moment of love, her heart becomes the drum and it becomes audible. And that rhythm of her heart 
right? It gives rise to a song and she sings into being the owl. And so I did the same thing, my version of it. And this is for your listeners as one practice. The number 13 is, is a, is the number of the underworld. It also represents Phoenix energy, right? Dying and rebirth. And so for 13 days, I did a ceremony for my three children. And for those 13 days, I didn't speak to anyone. Like literally, I didn't speak for 13 days. And I, because we're, we don't have a lot of time, I'll just very quickly say this. I set up an altar for my three children, right? It had many, the altar had many different things. One thing that I think is important for me to mention is I built a bridge on the altar and I built the bridge out of, out of straws, just plain straws, right? I built a bridge because we need a bridge to guide those who have transitioned, we need a bridge for them to move towards the other, to the world of the dead, right? And because my children are minors, I called in my ancestors and asked my ancestors who will step forward to help my children pass to the other world. And my maternal grandparents stepped forward. And I don't say this to break your listeners' hearts. I say this out of love. On my altar, I packed apple juice boxes. I packed string cheese. I packed little baby backpacks that I had for my children. I put their socks on. I put, they had, I left their blankets. And for 13 days, I prayed in front of the altar. And part of the ceremony also was my daughter my living child who I'm raising, she built a boat out of popsicle sticks. And so part of my ceremony was I would leave fruit out in the backyard for my children. And every morning I would see ants on the fruit. And so my children were coming through the bodies of the ant, right? And so on, on day 13, and you can't make this shit up, on day 13, when I opened the back door for my kitchen into my backyard, the popsicle stick boat had dissolved, like it fell apart. And that was the last day. And that's how I connected with my children. I waited to hear from my ancestors until they told me that the three of them had arrived. There's something about when the people that you love who are no longer here, and actually Dr. Bateman, who's a grief expert, she talks about, this is actually her idea. When people are no longer here, it gives us an opportunity to create a different type of relationship with them. And soon after my father died. And so the relationship that I have with my children and my father it's not a 3D embodiment, but there's still an embodiment there. It may not be here on Mother Earth, but there's a relationship there that I would argue is embodied. 
without them having a body. Does that help? Oh, that's so helpful. Thank you so much for sharing. It's making me think too, this is an idea from constellations, but this idea that when our loved ones die, we can feel a pull into death and a full, like a pull to follow them into where they've gone. And that ritual that you described sounds so beautiful because you, you built this bridge for your children into the afterlife, but then in a way that was also a bridge for you correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe perhaps a bridge for you back into your own life. Yes. No, this is your spot on. This is what I'm saying. You remember that moment I shared where I went into my adolescent daughter's room? Yes. It was a return. It's a return to life. And so the chapter that I'll share with you, I have these different ceremonies and spells that allow us to use grief as a portal to affirm our life. Hey there, it's Ellen Browning Lafferty, AKA L Browning. This is a super quick ad to invite you to subscribe to my email list. Be the first to hear about my free and paid workshops, receive my newsletter and get access to additional resources that I share exclusively with my community. I'd love to have you join us. Go to lbrowning.com. That's E-L-L-E-B-R-O-W-N-I-N-G.com. Hit subscribe to get access to all the latest offerings, resources, and updates from yours truly. I hope you'll join us. Now, let's get back to the show. May I offer something? Please. This is why I love the quote that you shared, shared with me from Rumi. The first part of it, let the beauty we love be what we do. So it's not about... It's not so much about what we do. The doing is important, but to think about why we're doing what we're doing, right? Why we're doing what we're doing. And so I was thinking a lot about the quote that you love so much, let the beauty we love be what we do. And for me, the beauty I love, it's vulnerabilities. Our vulnerabilities is the beauty that I love. Now I can say a whole bunch of stuff about that, but I'll hand it back to you. Can you please? Because you yeah. you anticipated exactly what my next question was, which was exactly what is the beauty that you love in the context of that quote. So vulnerabilities. Yeah, Vulnerab- yeah following. I'd love I'd love yeah. to hear more if there's more you yes. have to share. So much more because I think that needs unpacking completely. So. Here's where I'm coming from, right? So I think as as a social inequalities and trauma scholar, I think a lot about our sexualized and racialized neoliberal economy. I think a lot about misogynist medical industrial complexes where women are constantly told, you don't know what the fuck you're doing and where postpartum is pathologized, right? But from my orientation, given the masculinist and misogynist grips in the medical industrial complex, I would argue postpartum is a completely reasonable response, right? Yeah. So absolutely. 100%. Yeah. It's a reasonable response. Cause I, I often think about, I had an episiotomy when I gave birth to my daughter, but I didn't know about it until later. So there's 
these, these forms of masculinist reproductive violence, why wouldn't we have postpartum? <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm laughing because I'm angry about it. And because um, it's so absurd. Yes. Yes. So absurd. Yes. And so going back to these vulnerabilities, my orientation is, and I think this is particularly true for girls and women and marginalized folks in the U.S., we're taught that our vulnerabilities are our weaknesses and that we are suspect, right, when we are vulnerable. But Dr. M. Scott Peck, he argues, the first line in his book, The Road Less Traveled, the first line in his book is, life is about pain right? There's, there's no way out of it. Life is about pain. And so as a vulnerability scholar, I view vulnerability as a resource versus a weakness. And my belief is that our raw and exposed souls, right? Because vulnerability is when we're raw, when we're exposed, that our raw and exposed souls, they when our souls are raw and exposed, they then have an opportunity. Our soul then has an opportunity to inhabit the most unrecognizable parts of ourselves, right? That's when we can connect with our shadows, right? And I argue in my work, this chapter, Bones of the Womb, I argue that when we tap into our unrecognizable parts of ourselves, that becomes a source of miraculous artistic creation, right? And just back to Rumi, I understand vulnerabilities to be both form and function of love. And what I mean by this is that there's an intimate, and I would argue erotic, and I, I will explain erotic in a little bit, what I mean by erotic. There's an intimate and erotic relationship between vulnerabilities and love, and both vulnerabilities and love serve to create beauty in this world. That's what I Argue. Mic drop. I just, yeah. Please continue. All right. I think because I'm throwing around a lot of words: vulnerability, love, erotic, beauty, and I think I think it would serve us, all of us, if we unpack. I think particularly if we unpack the meanings of love and erotic to help us develop a deeper understanding of the connections between love and beauty and vulnerability. So I am going to go back to Peck. I love Peck. Like his book, when I picked it up in college, I mean, he wrote it in 1978, The Road Less Traveled. That became like my Bible and I still use it. And so I use Peck to understand the meaning of love. And in his book, Peck borrows from a German from the German social psychologist Eric Fromm. And Eric Fromm defines love as, and I love this definition, the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth right? The will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own 
or another spiritual growth. I adore this conceptualization of love because it honors that love is a choice versus an instinct because we think about love as an instinct. But I'm telling you, maybe this is a side note, I don't know, but we choose to love our children and we can also choose not to love them. Right? So I love this idea of, lo of love being a choice because Peck does right we don't have to love, right? We choose to love. And so how do I use this work? So for me, love and vulnerability are intentional and deliberate practices of showing up in the world fully, right? I think love and vulnerability are intentional and deliberate. And I think it's so this word fully, I use it often and I'm inspired to use it. You and I both know family constellation expert and author Susie Tucker, right? So I follow in her footsteps to understand what fully means. So fully means to develop a capacity, right? It means to develop a capacity to show up in the world, in our lives, right? And engage with the good, bad, and ugly infidelity. That's how I, that's how I understand fully. And Susie says something about versus, because what's the alternative? The alternative is re recoiling, right? Into passivity and disconnection where there's no room to move deeper into one's life. Susie talks about these alternatives in terms of bitterness, anger, resentment, we all know that we all have narcissists in our lives, narcissism, and we may be the narcissists. So I, I argue that living our lives fully means that we are willing to step into the world and offer ourselves without fear and create interactions and connections like this one, like the one that you and I are creating right now that are authentically supportive and nourishing because this space right now is so deeply nourishing to me and I made the choice to show that and I'm so glad you did <laughs> thank you thank you and I think living this way and Elle I, I think the work that you're doing right I also went onto your website check you out I think the work that you're doing is living fully and the, and when we live fully we are erotic and i think it's really important for your listeners to tap into this word erotic right i consider living fully to be erotic and without a doubt without a doubt i am drawing on black feminist thought i'm drawing on audrey lord may she rest in peace right lord in her famous essay uses of the erotic she has this particular definition that I wrote down because I wanted to share it with you. This is what she defines erotic as. It is so gorgeous. She says erotic is the distance between the beginnings of our sense of self, right? The distance between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings.
That's what erotic is. So if we if we deconstruct this, what she's saying, her definition, if we deconstruct this, then what this means is that the erotic is a choice of experiencing the fullness of the depth of our feelings, right? So there's no way out. We've got to engage with our grief. The erotic, I would argue, right? When we engage with our grief, the depth of it, I would argue then that we are also engaging with self-respect, right? So the erotic, and Lord talks about the erotic being self, is about self-respect, It that we can't require less of ourselves. And on the other hand, and she also said the erotic is joy, right? It's our capacity of joy and sharing joy. The erotic is self-connection. So what we have right now, what we're building right now, you and I, Al, this is erotic, right? This is an erotic connection, right? It can be through music. It can be through writing, singing, dancing, right? For me, it's thinking. And finally, Lord argues that the erotic is asking ourselves and others to be excellent, right? To show up in the world with integrity, honor, and authenticity, right? So as I'm showing up here, I'm showing up here with excellence because that is my bar for myself. And I expect others who are engaging with me to engage with excellence also. That's really profound. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'm also thinking with that definition of eroticism and this engaging in life fully, and the self-respect, all of these elements, that also builds capacity and a yeah. sense of ourselves where we're proving to ourselves that we can yeah, by showing up fully in that way. Yeah, yeah. And I, don't, I completely 100% agree with you. If I may, I'm not, I think I'd like to pull out the word proving. Yeah, so it's, I think it's, it just is, it just is. It's not about proving, but it just is. So when we, for in my work, when we choose to sit with our grief, then we are choosing to show up fully. Then we're choosing to engage in self-respect and integrity, honor, and authenticity. Yeah. Look, Lord... Right. I teach Lord. So I remember a lot of, she, she writes that erotic knowledge empowers us because it's an honest evaluation of all aspects of our lives. I believe that we're here on this earth, that if we have chosen to be on this earth, I believe that this is our responsibility to, to not settle for what just was convenient. Or I think it is our responsibility to engage in honest evaluation. So if you follow this, then I argue in my work that the erotic, it offers I think what I'm going to say right now is really important. The erotic 
offers up to us our vulnerabilities, right? The erotic offers up to us our vulnerabilities as a potential well of replenishment. I think this is where the beauty of vulnerability comes in for me. This well of replenishment. Thank you. I have just a few last questions. Okay. <laughs> One is, what is your legacy or what do you want your legacy to be? What do I want my legacy to be? It would be for my daughter... Out of my pregnancies, I have had one live birth, and I'm raising that child, and uh, she's now almost 20. And my legacy, I would like for her to be able to return what doesn't belong to her, which is my grief, her ancestors' grief, and to simply take from us life, the breadth of life, so that she can live her life fully. Thank you so much for sharing. Of course. I know we're at time, and so we need to wrap up, but there, there are so many things I want to ask you about. But I do want to ask you some of these questions from the Pivo questionnaire, which after you dropped all these profound knowledge bombs, I'm like, now I'm going to ask you some fairly vapid questions. But... <laughs> Okay. We're interjecting a little a little bit of fun here. Okay. What is your favorite word? Oh, that's easy. Orgasm. Yes, love it. What is your least favorite word? What is my least favorite word? It's not a favorite word. It's a least favorite word, but least favorite phrase. There's two. I can't without you. And I'll die without you. Those are my least favorite statements. I can't without you. And I'll die without you. I can feel the suffocation of those statements. Yeah. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? What turns me on? Prayer and ritual and spells and my ancestors turn me on. So I carry my ancestors everywhere I go. They're behind me, holding me up. And so my ancestral legacy turns me on. And I'm just repeating myself, the prayers and rituals that I engage in, the ceremonies that I engage in, huge turn on. What turns you off? What turns me off? I'm sure there's... A lot of things that turn me off, didactic thinking, linear thinking turns me off, not being able to see nuance, being able to think with nuance. Yeah, li linear thinking. If thinking is linear, then it's not transgressive. And I think being transgressive is how we can live, how we can live fully. Can you share more about transgressive? And define that? Yeah, I would argue that going back to vulnerability, I think when we embrace the truth of our vulnerability, that can be radical, right? And that's what I mean by transgressive. And I think when we embrace the truths of our vulnerability, we can expand. So if we see vulnerability as a mode of being, 
right? To stay claim, to sit with and affirm, right? Then this is not linear thinking, right? So if we can participate in this as a mode of being, then I believe that this teaching of staking a claim with our vulnerability, being transgressive, radical, and expansive, I believe that this knowledge will show us how to restore life and shift our traumas. Thank you. What is your favorite curse word? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of singing. I love the sound of the rattle. And I love the sound of, I don't know how to explain it, but it's the sound that the wind makes when it's going through the desert. There's a particular sound that the wind makes. I love that sound so much that I, I named the daughter that I'm raising. That sound is called Ranim in Arabic. I named her Ranim, that sound that you hear. It's just this gorgeous sound. It's this, it's almost like a binaural beat. Like when the wind is going through the desert, it's like a mixture of howling and this rattling and the singing bowl is just really gorgeous. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, like the sound of screeching and it, that halt, it feels very, it feels violent. It feels, it, to me, that screeching sound feels like lack of consent. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I don't know. There's so many things. I'd love to dance, like professionally to dance. I'm very drawn to the art of belly dancing. I'm, I'm just movement. I'm drawn to bodily movement. So I don't know if dance is the right word, but wouldn't it be amazing to have a living where your work was to move with your body and listen to beats and the body is connected to those sounds? That would be amazing, right? What profession would you not like to do? What profession would I not like to do? I don't know, maybe my profession, the profession that I have as, as a scholar is an academic in an academia. It's mired in, in bureaucracy. And it's the way that academia is structured is antithetical, I think, to creativity. Like I'll say this, everything that I have learned about being a productive citizen of the world, right? I don't think my masculinist training as a social scientist set me up for that. Look, I do love my training, but I think my work as an academic, everything that I've learned about living life fully is antithetical to my rigid and material masculinist training as a social scientist. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes so much sense. I'm so glad we have all that recorded. Okay, last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God, Allah, the divine say when you arrive at the pearly gates? We're ready for round one billion. 
we choose to come back here, right? We have the choice of not coming back. So when the pearly gates open for me, ready for the next round? <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. It has been such an insightful interview. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us and share your thoughts. Thank you, Elle. I really loved being here. Thank you. Last question. If people want to reach you, what's the best way to do that? Email is great. Liberation at drrockbad.com. Liberation at drrockbad.com. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you, Elle. The Beauty We Love podcast is produced by yours truly, Ellen Browning Lafferty, a.k.a. L. Browning. Our podcast theme song is Southside by KLM. I also want to thank you for tuning in and staying until the end. If you got something good from this episode, I encourage you to subscribe and leave a review. You can also go to my website where you can join my email list to stay up to date on all my latest offerings, as well as get access to my newsletter. Go to lbrowning.com. That's E-L-L-E-B-R-O-W-N-I-N-G.com. You're warmly invited to join us next week when I interview Emily Stutzman, co-owner and CEO of Happy Lucky, a strategic brand design agency with soul and fluent in work that shifts hearts, minds, and culture. Listen as she shares her path from growing up Mennonite on a farm in Oregon to becoming CEO of one of the only clear-owned advertising agencies in the industry. We have gone as far to change how we describe ourselves from being a creative agency. Obviously, that's language people understand or an ad agency to a creative community because one of the things we've both know, I mean, we've all noticed shift in culture is people are lonelier. They have a harder time finding community. Work is not family, but work can be community. And even if you leave the community, there's still community that you've built here and that you can take with you either through your network here or your network with vendors or clients and just trying to make people feel hugged, I guess, at work. <laughs> the beauty I love is the community that we've built here. And it's powerful when you step into this place into this group of people, into this collective of thinkers and doers, it's powerful and it's intentional. And I am astounded by its beauty and I'm astounded by the connectedness and the trust that we've built and the grandeur of what we're creating together. It's remarkable. I think that would be the beauty I love in this community. We'll see you next week.